I've told you all before, live the kind of life that makes a minister's job easy when you die. I used to say to my students as they were going off on the journey of life, I used to take them into a kind of a meditative place, allow our eyes to fall shut, as of course I use, and say, I want you to imagine that you're at your own funeral. And people are going to get up and speak about you. Somebody from your family. A friend. A work colleague. And I want you to imagine what you would like that they would say about you. And then obviously to live a life that would have those things said. I've never heard a good funeral tribute service that went like this. Well, Marmaduke Ilanthi. I tried to find a name that nobody would take as theirs. So if you're called Marmaduke Ilanthi and you're a visitor this morning, be very frightened at this point. Marmaduke Ilanthi lived their lives totally for themselves. It was a wonderful life of self-indulgence and self-absorption. We admire them for it. They made themselves the center. They caused everyone to give them their attention. They contributed to their own garden, to their car collection, the size of their house and their bank balance. They gave of themselves to great holidays for themselves. They made their millions. And in keeping with their admiral self-centeredness, they are giving it to no one, but are having it buried with them today. We thank God for the life of Marmaduke Ilanthi. I've never in my life even been suggested to me that I should say such things about a life that would seem to be good or admirable. Nobody in the end thinks it's commendable to live for self. And as we've been traveling through these travel narratives, a song by a, a singer called T-Bone Burnett has come to me, and I've used it before in Fitzroy. It's a funny thing about humility, T-Bone sings. As soon as you know you're being humble, you're no longer humble. And it's a funny thing about life, that you've got to give up your life to be alive. You've got to suffer to know compassion. You can't want nothing if you want satisfaction. Over these last months, even my entire ministry, I've talked about the caress and collide of the gospel. We were thinking last week of how God moves first. We can only love because God first loved us. Without the Holy Spirit, there's no new rebirth. In fact, in our series in the Prodigal Son, which of course we've been reading over the course of the last week, we learned from Kenneth Bailey that with Jesus, repentance equals the acceptance of being found. With Jesus, repentance equals the acceptance of being found. And that's quite a life-changing, upside-down, repenting idea that we are found by somebody else and that we cannot do it on our own. But we've also learned that grace is a verb. 
It's not something that's passive. It's something that compels us to respond and to be changed like the turn, the tumble turn of the swimmer at the end of a length in the swimming pool. God moves first and grace immediately in the same moment causes us to respond in transformation, change, repentance, turning around if we like. And so I get the opportunity during this series in these 10 chapters of Luke to reflect on what strikes me, not only personally, but obviously as the pastor shepherd of a congregation. And it seems to me that there's no way we can begin through these readings without realizing that a couple of times at the end of Luke chapter 9 where we start it and then at the end of Luke chapter 14 that Jesus is talking about the cost of what it is to follow him. And of course it starts actually before he set his face in Jerusalem. 9.51 is where we start our travel narratives. But if we go earlier in the chapter to verses 23 and 24 of Luke 9, that moment where they're in Caesarea Philippi and Jesus saying, who do the crowd say I am and who do you say that I am? Jesus then says to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Where T-Bone Burnett got his phrase, it's a funny thing about life. You've got to give up your life to be alive. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. And then, of course, as we start at the travel narratives, I will follow you wherever you go. Well, foxes of dens and birds of nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You've got to consider that if you want to follow me. I want to follow you. Or Jesus said to somebody, follow me. Oh, Lord, first let me bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Which, of course, we come back to in the reading that Sarah has just read for us. Because in chapter 14, there's large crowds following Jesus again. They're in this travel narrative. They're around him as he's heading towards Jerusalem. And he says to them, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, reflecting back to those verses in Luke chapter 9. Or in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples at the end of that passage. And what we need to remember here is Jesus is talking about the cost. And as Sarah was reading it um, there a moment ago, I I got a sense as it was read this morning, and this wasn't, well, it was what I was thinking during the week, but maybe more acutely, that Jesus is going through in his own mind his own cost of the salvation of the world. He has set his face in Jerusalem. He knows what is up ahead. He is saying this word cross to disciples who are not quite understanding that that is where he is heading. And almost as he's heading there, he's saying, you know, you've got to count the cost of this before you'll go forward to it. And he's almost, he's talking about his own decisions. 
his own setting his face to Jerusalem. And if you step back from it, then it's useless and you're to be thrown out. Jesus is realizing the cost of the salvation of the world on himself. But he's also realizing that if you follow Jesus, then the obvious response is that it's going to be costly for the disciple too. And he's giving them warnings. If you're really interested in this upside down kingdom that I'm bringing in, if you're really up for this subversive revolution, then be aware, this is going to cost you everything. So as I pondered this over the course of the last week, I was thinking, where in the travel narrative specifically does Jesus point out places that it's going to cost his disciples and us? And I'm throwing out three of those this morning. The first one we kind of looked at a bit last week. Sectarianism and prejudice. It's all the way through these chapters. The prejudice that the religious had for the marginalized or the tax collector or the Samaritan. And Jesus is just smashing all the defaults of the people around him. And in trying to get them to understand that they're going to have to change their attitudes towards these people that they have excluded and that he is gathering around him, there's this humility that underlines it all. Like we read from Philippians 2, being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Follow me. Follow me in the light of that verse is, don't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but make yourself nothing in humility, in humble obedience, in living for others, not self. Sectarianism and prejudice is when we say we are better, we are different, and we exclude. We are better people. We know better than them. They are inferior to us, whether that's gender, whether that's race, or whether that's religion. And so in chapter 10, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. We talked about this last week, and I'm not going to go back into that. The good Samaritan. No, it can't be a Samaritan after the religious people get it wrong. How can it be a Samaritan that comes to the guy's aid? Breaking the prejudice and sectarianism. Humbling the people to see that God works outside their definitions, their boundaries, their exclusion zones. And then as we said in chapter 17... One of the ten lepers, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Boom. The cost for us of following Jesus is that our new humility in realizing that it's not of us, that it's of God, will mean that we will have to, in a costly way, change our attitudes towards others. The Samaritan idea took me back to Luke 7. When Jesus heard the Roman centurion saying, Just say the word, Jesus, and you'll heal my servant. 
Jesus was amazed at him and he turned to the crowd and said, I tell you, you have not found such great faith even in Israel. The prejudice against the Roman centurion is smashed and we have to think again about how we exclude or are prejudiced or sectarian. Wealth. That's costly, giving up everything. In chapter 12, Jesus said, Man, who appointed me to be judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, as Marmaduke Ilanthi in our early story would discover. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Or the rich young ruler that we will come towards in the next week. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The cost. The cost. Your wealth. Your wealth's getting in the way. Sell it all. Give it to the poor. Follow treasure in heaven. And then you can follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then our religious pride. We are in, they are out. We are sound, they are unsound. We are evangelical and reformed. A couple of the words that causes those definitions these days. And they are ecumenical, liberal, and charismatic, which you couldn't be any worse than. Jesus, in these travel narratives and throughout his ministry, is constantly challenging the religiosity, the self-righteousness of those around him. Chapter 11. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. And have we still not got that desire to be right on the outside? To be respectable on the outside? To look well? To look well not only even in what we dress, but also in how we appear. Speaking to somebody involved in mission just over the the past week, and they're now involved in business outside of mission work, and they were saying they've had more real, honest conversations outside of the church and mission work than they ever had inside it, because when we come to church, well, we're keen to show on the outside that everything's all right. When we come to realize that it's by grace alone that we're saved through faith, And that's nothing of ourselves. The humility that that brings will cost us the outward appearance. It will cost us our idea of self-righteousness. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplace. The Pharisees were constantly trying to show on the outside that they were better than other people that they were looking down on other people and Jesus is coming to say the cost of following me is that you need to let go of any of your self-righteous judgments. 
that wonderful prayer that we're coming to in Luke 18, where the Pharisee thanks God that he's a Protestant, Presbyterian, committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith and all Reformed truth, unlike this poor sinner over here who was born in West Belfast and probably has never heard the gospel. And the sinner comes and just says, I'm a sinner. Lord, forgive me. Jesus says, I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Which is what Romans or Philippians chapter 2 was telling us in the life of Jesus himself. Oh, the Pharisees were right theologically and we shouldn't lose that. The Pharisees were right legalistically and we shouldn't lose that. But there were things underneath the surface of those things that were not at all in keeping with following Jesus. So we're down to these three things. Sectarianism. Wealth. Don't forget on that first Sunday night when Desi gave us an overview of these chapters. The poor are really crucial to that and we thought about that a little bit last week. And wealth comes and challenges how we see the poor because the poor seem to have a special place in these scenarios and then this religious pride and it would be easy to see these things especially sectarianism and and are looking after the poor and not chasing after wealth is kind of the social end of the gospel but what we've got to realize that the personal and the social can never be separated if the, if the personal is working at all then it will overflow into the social they're not two compartments where we say, well, well, that sermon this morning, Steve, was, was very much about uh, the social work that the church does. And last week's sermon, you were thinking about the personal, piety and holiness. The two cannot be separated because one flows out of the other. And that night we had at Sacred Heart at the end of the Four Corners Festival, Alana Ward, one of the young people who spoke, um, she said, we need the peace in our hearts to overflow into the peace of the city. And I went, there's theological brilliance. Because for so long we've looked for peace in our hearts, but that peace in our hearts has been contained to our hearts rather than flowing out through our hearts into what we do across the city and the nation. The personal cost of following Jesus is that in the center of our being, we will be humbled to realize that God loves us as we are and that we are no better than others and that but for the grace of God go we and in seeing that then the humility that comes from it will seek to serve and to see other people differently than we've seen them up until now. But now as for what is in the inside, we thought about with the Pharisees earlier, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Which took me back to Micah 6 and verse 8, which bizarrely the worship band chose to sing before the sermon. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly 
with your God. What is the cost of following Jesus? For me. For me. This week. Where did it get costly for Stockman? Where was there a deep cost in what I did this week? As I've told us before, we have a serious stumbling block to making any of what we've just read from the scriptures in this morning's sermon any way a reality. Because we're wealthy, we're educated, we're comfortable in the most wealthy, educated, comfortable generation that ever lived, were in the very heart of it, especially the months in BT9. How to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow Jesus in that environment is incredibly difficult. So where did it cost me this week? Where did it cost us this week? Where did it cost us as individuals? Where does it cost us as a community? Do we love him more than family? More than self? Are we giving up our lives to be alive? Does any of this make any sense? In my life? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me because whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a funny thing about life got to give up your life to be alive. Let's pray. Lord, truly some of these first century texts that we've been reading today and where they meet our lives in the 21st century It's challenging, Lord. It's disconcerting. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to give up our lives to be alive? Where, Lord, are we giving up our lives? Where is there a costliness to our discipleship? Does the world see that, Lord? We pray as we travel through these narratives and look, as Jesus goes towards his cross, giving up his very life for the world, that as we dare to say we're followers, stumblers and tumblers, we talk about it often, that you might just break in by your grace and your spirit interrupt the comfort and complacency of this veneer of Christian discipleship and help us to face these challenging words of Christ. Humble us, Lord. 
show us where you are and surprise us where you're working. Help us to look deep into our souls and see our own prejudices and sectarianism, our own love of wealth, or our own distraction of wealth, or the fact that even just having wealth can prevent us from radical discipleship. And forgive us for our own religious pride. Humble us by your Spirit. So that in giving up our lives, we might live life and life in all its fullness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.